Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Verses 1 through 6. And he went out from thence, and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, hearing him, were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? What wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he lay his hands upon a few sick folk, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went around about the village's teaching. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, having in the former chapter wrought two famous miracles, in curing a woman of her bloody issue and raising Jairus's daughter from the dead, we find him here in the beginning of this chapter, passing into his own country, that is, the city of Nazareth in Galilee, called his own city and country because he was there conceived, there brought up, there Joseph and Mary and his kindred dwelt, and Christ with them during his private life which was till he was thirty years of age. Now our Savior being come into his own country, observe one, what his employment was. He preached in their synagogues and held communion with the Jewish church, although she had many corruptions in her, teaching us by his example not to desert and forsake the communion of such a church in which there is found neither heretical doctrine nor idolatrous worship, although many things be found in her culpable and blameworthy. The Jewish church was certainly such, and yet our Savior maintained not occasional only, but constant communication with her. Observe, too, the influence and effect which our Savior's preaching had upon his own countrymen, the people of Nazareth. It did work admiration in them, but not faith. They were astonished, but did not believe. Men may be mightily moved and affected by the word, and yet never be converted by it. The men of Nazareth wondered, and yet were offended. They did not believe in him but were offended at him. Observe three, the ground and cause of their offense, and that was the meanness of his extraction and the poverty of his condition. Is this not the carpenter? From whence the ancient fathers, particularly Justin Martyr, concluded that our Savior did work at his father Joseph's trade during his father's life, and then was called the carpenter's son. And when Joseph was dead, which was before Christ was thirty years old, when he entered upon his public office, he was then called the carpenter. The ancients say he spent his time in making plows and yokes, and that thence it was he drew so many solemnitudes in his preaching from the yoke and the plow. This we are sure of, that our Lord lived not thirty years before his manifestation idly and unprofitably. It is most probable that he followed his father's calling and wrought under him, it being said that he was subject to him, Luke 2.15, as a child to a parent and a servant to his master. Add to this that it seems not only true, but requisite, that Christ should be of some trade, because by the Jewish canons all fathers were bound to teach their children some trade. Yea, says the learned Dr. Whitby, their most celebrated rabbins thought it a great reproach not to be of some trade. Doubtless our Lord, during his private life, did give no example of idleness. 
Indeed, after he entered upon his prophetic office, he no longer followed Joseph's calling, but applied himself wholly to the work of the ministry. He made no more plows, but one to break up hard hearts. No more yokes, but one for the devil's neck. However, in regard to our Savior's low extraction and mean education, his countrymen were offended at him. Learn hence that the poverty and meanness of Christ's condition was that which multitudes stumbled at, and which kept many, yea, most, from believing on him. None but a spiritual eye can discern beauty in a humbled and abased Savior. Learn, too, that it is the property and practice of profane men to take occasion from the outward quality and condition of God's ministers, both to despise their persons and to reject their doctrine. Observe 4. The reason assigned by our Savior why the men of Nazareth despised him and set him at naught. Because he was their countryman and acquaintance. Their familiarity bred contempt, teaching us that very often the faithful ministers of God are most contemned and dishonored where they are most familiarly known. Sometimes the remembrance of their mean original and extraction, sometimes the poverty of their parents' conditions, sometimes the indecencies of their childhood, sometimes the follies of their youth are ripped up, all which are occasions of contempt and gave ground for this proverbial saying, that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, which, like other proverbial speeches, holds true in the general, and that for the most part it is so, but it is not universally true in all persons and cases. However, this good use may be made of our Savior's observation to teach his ministers to be wise in conversing with their people, not to make themselves cheap and common in every company, not too familiar with all sorts of persons, nor to be light and vain in any company, for this will certainly breed contempt, both of their persons and ministry. Our duty is, by strictness and gravity of deportment, to maintain our esteem in the consciences of our people, and to temper gravity with condescending affability. That minister who prostitutes his authority frustrates the end of his ministry and is the occasion of his own contempt. Observe 5. How this people's contempt of Christ's person and unbelief of his doctrine did hinder Christ from working miracles among them. He could do no mighty works there, not because he was unable, but because they were unwilling, not as if their infidelity abated his divine power, but they were unprepared to receive any benefit by him his miracles would have been cast away upon such inconvincible persons. Who will sow upon barren sands or water dead plants? It was an act of justice in Christ to deprive the Pharisees of those advantages which they had so long resisted. Christ had a natural ability to do mighty works there, but no moral ability. He could not do it honorably. Their unbelief was a moral hindrance. So then, his inability proceeded from no deficiency in Christ's power, but from a defect in their faith. He could not because he would not, and he would not because it was not fit for him so to do. Although Christ be omnipotent and has all power in his hands, yet unbelief binds his hands and hinders him in the execution of that power. Unbelief is such a sin as keeps men from being partakers of the benefits of Christ. Observe 6. How the incredulity and unbelief of this people was so great that Christ wondered at it. He marveled because of their unbelief, not because he was ignorant of the cause of it, but because he had used such marvelous means for the curing them of their unbelief. Learn hence that unbelief is a great sin at all times, but when marvels are wrought for the cure and healing of it, and it remains uncured, it is a marvelous sin, 
and justly causes admiration and wonder in Christ himself. He marveled because of their unbelief. Verses 7 through 13. And he calleth unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet, for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, It shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick, and healed them. Burkett notes, We heard before, chapter 3, of our Savior's solemn calling his apostles to their work and office. Now he sends them forth to execute their office. Or observe one, the person that sends them forth, Christ. Thence learn that none ought to take upon them the office of preaching or any other ministerial function in the church till thereunto lawfully called by Christ himself. The apostles were immediately called and sent forth by Christ himself and received a doctrine which they taught immediately from Christ's own mouth. His ministers now are called immediately. They receive their authority from Christ by the hands of the governors of his church. Observe, too, the manner of their sending, two by two in a company, partly to make their message of more authority, partly to testify their mutual consent in the doctrine which they taught, and partly to comfort and encourage, to help and strengthen, to assist and support each other. In imitation of this example, the Jesuits sent forth their emissaries by pairs. Learn hence that the ministers of the word do stand in great need of mutual help and comfort, of the united assistance and encouragement of each other in the weighty duties of their calling and function. Like laborers in the harvest field, they should help one another, the strong endeavoring to strengthen the hands of the weak. But, Lord, what tears are sufficient to bewail the want of love and unity, yea, the prevalency of that fear and malignity which is found too often amongst the ministers of the gospel, so that instead of going forth by two and two, happy is he that is alone in a place. Well might Malachathon bless God when he lay a-dying, that he was going to a place where he should be freed from the implacable hatred of divines. This is and ought to be for a lamentation. Observe three, the power given by Christ to work miracles for confirming the doctrine of the gospel, which his apostles preached. He gave them power over unclean spirits, and they cast out devils, and anointed with oil them that were sick, and healed them. This power to work miracles was necessary for the apostles, partly to procure reverence to their persons, being poor and unlearned men, but principally to gain credit and authority to their doctrine. For the doctrine of the faith in the Messiah has now come and exhibited in the flesh, being a strange and new doctrine to the Jews, the truth and certainty of it, was to be extraordinarily ratified by Christ's and his apostles' miracles, some of which were casting out devils and by anointing with oil to heal and recover sick persons. This gift of healing remained some time in the church, as appeared by St. James 5.14. Is any sick? Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Where observe that the apostles did not use oil as the instrument and means of healing, for then the cure had not been miraculous 
but only as a symbol of the cure, or as an outward sign and testimony of miraculous healing, which outward sign was for the strengthening of the faith of such as were healed, assuring them that as certainly as their bodies were anointed, so certainly should their health and strength be restored. Papists upon this ground their sacrament of extramunction, but very vainly, for the apostles anointed those that were sick as a sign of their recovery, but the papists anoint those that have pangs of death upon them, that their sins may be blotted out and the snares of the devil avoided. Observe 4. The charge given by Christ to his apostles at the time of their sending out. This is threefold. First, touching their preparation for the journey, he bids them not take much care or spend much time in furnishing themselves with victuals, money, apparel, weapons of defense, and the like only taking a walking staff in their hands, because they were to finish their journey speedily and to return again to Christ. This command of our Savior to his apostles, not to encumber themselves when going forth to preach the gospel, teaches his ministers their duty to free themselves as much as possibly they can from worldly encumbrances, which may hinder them in the performance of their office and function. 2 Timothy 2.4 no man that weareth entangle himself with the affairs of this life. Secondly, touching their lodging in their journey, our Savior advises them not to change it during their stay in one place, but into whatsoever house they first enter, they should there continue till they depart out of that place. That, so that they might avoid all show of lightness and inconstancy, and testify all gravity and staidness in their behavior, this being a special mean to win authority to their person and ministry. Thirdly, Christ gives a charge to his apostles touching their carriage towards such as should refuse to give entertainment to them and their doctrine. They were to denounce the judgments of God against such contemners by shaking off the dust of their feet for a testimony against them. Thence learn that the contempt of God's ministers and especially of their ministry and doctrine, is an odious and execrable sin, detested by God, and which ought to be abhorred by man. Shake off the dust of your feet. This action was emblematical, signifying that Almighty God would in like manner shake them off as the vilest dust. Learn, too, that wherever the word is preached, it is for a testimony, either for or against the people. For if the dust of a minister's feet bear witness against the despisers of the gospel, their sermons much more. Observe lastly the dreadful judgment denounced by our Savior against the condemners of the apostles' doctrine. Verily it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Where note 1. That there shall be a day of judgment. 2. That in the day of judgment some sinners shall fare worse than others. 3. That of all sinners, the condition of such will be saddest at the day of judgment, who, having lived under the gospel, have died, after all, in impenitency and infidelity. Verily, I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city.